Chapter 28 of The Moon Pool by Abraham Merritt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Moon Pool. Chapter 28 In the Lair of the Dweller. It is with marked hesitation that I begin this chapter, because in it I must deal with an experience so contrary to every known law of physics as to seem impossible. Until this time, barring, of course, the mystery of the dweller, I had encountered nothing that was not susceptible of naturalistic explanation, nothing, in a word, outside the domain of science itself, nothing that I would have felt hesitancy in reciting to my colleagues of the International Association of Science. Amazing, unfamiliar, advanced, as many of the phenomena were, still they lay well within the limits of what we have mapped as the possible. In regions, it is true, still virgin to the mind of man, but toward which that mind is steadily advancing. But this, well, I confess that I have a theory that is naturalistic, but so abstruse, so difficult to make clear within the short confines of the space I have to give it, so dependent upon conceptions that even the highest-trained scientific brains find difficult to grasp, that I despair. I can only say that the thing occurred, that it took place in precisely the manner I am about to narrate, and that I experienced it. Yet, in justice to myself, I must open up some paths of preliminary approach toward the heart of the perplexity, and the first path is the realization that our world, whatever it is, is certainly not the world as we see it. Regarding this, I shall refer to a discourse upon gravitation and the principle of relativity, by the distinguished English physicist Dr. A. S. Eddington, which I had the pleasure of hearing him deliver before the Royal Institution. I realize, of course, that it is not true logic to argue, the world is not as we think it is, Therefore, everything we think impossible is possible in it. Even if it be different, it is governed by law. The truly impossible is that which is outside law, and as nothing can be outside law, the impossible cannot exist. The crux of the matter then becomes our determination whether what we think is impossible may or may not be possible under laws still beyond our knowledge. I hope that you will pardon me for this somewhat academic digression, but I felt it was necessary, and it has, at least, put me more at ease. And now to resume. We had watched, Larry and I, the frogmen throw the bodies of Yolara's assassins into the crimson waters. As vultures swooped down upon the dying, there came, sailing swiftly to where the dead men floated, dozens of the luminous globes. Their slender, vari-colored tentacles whipped out, the giant iridescent bubbles climbed over the cadavers, and as they touched them there was the swift dissolution, the melting away into putrescence of flesh and bone, that I had witnessed when the dart touched fruit that time I saved Rador, and upon this the Medusae gorged, pulsing lambently, their wondrous colors shifting, changing, glowing stronger. Elfin moons now indeed, but satellites whose glimmering beauty was fed by death, alembics of enchantment whose glorious hues were sucked from horror.
Sick, I turned away, O'Keefe as pale as I, passed back into the corridor that had opened on the ledge from which we had watched, met Lakla hurrying toward us. Before she could speak, there throbbed faintly about us a vast sighing. It grew into a murmur, a whispering, shook us, then, passing like a presence, died away in far distance. "'The portal has opened,' said the handmaiden. A fainter sighing, like an echo of the other, mourned about us. "'Yolara is gone,' she said. "'The portal is closed. Now we must hasten, for the three have commanded that you, Goodwin, and Larry and I tread that strange road of which I have spoken, and which Olaf may not take, lest his heart break, and we must return ere he and Rador cross the bridge. Her hand sought Larry's. Come, said Lakla, and we walked on, down and down, through hall after hall, flight upon flight of stairways. Deep, deep indeed, we must be beneath the domed castle. Lakla paused before a curved, smooth breast of the crimson stone, rounding gently into the passage. She pressed its side. It revolved. We entered. It closed behind us. The room, the hollow in which we stood, was faceted like a diamond, and like a cut brilliant its sides glistened, though dully. Its shape was a deep oval, and our path dropped down to a circular polished base, roughly two yards in diameter. Glancing behind me, I saw that, in the closing of the entrance, there had been left no trace of it, save the steps that led from where that entrance had been. And as I looked, these steps turned, leaving us isolated upon the circle, only the faceted walls about us, and in each of the gleaming faces the three of us reflected dimly. It was as though we were within a diamond egg, whose graven angles had been turned inward. But the oval was not perfect. At my right a screen cut it, a screen that gleamed with fugitive, fleeting luminescences, stretching from the side of our standing-place up to the tip of the chamber. Slightly convex and criss-crossed by millions of fine lines, like those upon a spectroscopic plate but with this difference, that within each line I sensed the presence of multitudes of finer lines, dwindling into infinitude, ultra-microscopic, traced by some instrument compared to whose delicacy our finest tool would be as a crowbar to the needle of a micrometer. A foot or two from it stood something like the standee of a compass, bearing, like it, a cradled dial, under whose crystal ran concentric rings of prisoned, lambent vapors, faintly blue. From the edge of the dial jutted a little shelf of crystal, a keyboard, in which were cut eight small cups. Within these cups the handmaiden placed her tapering fingers. She gazed down upon the disk, pressed a digit, and the screen behind us slipped noiselessly into another angle. "'Put your arm around my waist, Larry, darling, and stand close,' she murmured. "'You, Goodwin, place your arm over my shoulder.' Wondering, I did as she bade. She pressed other fingers upon the shelf's indentations. Three of the rings of vapor spun into intense light, raced around each other. 
from the screen behind us grew a radiance that held within itself all spectrums, not only those seen, but those unseen by man's eyes. It waxed brilliant and ever more brilliant, all suffusing, passing through me as day streams through a window-pane. The enclosing facets burst into a blaze of coruscations, and in each sparkling panel I saw our images, shaken and torn like pennants in a whirlwind. I turned to look, was stopped by the handmaiden's swift command, "'Turn not on your life!' The radiance behind me grew, was a rushing tempest of light in which I was but the shadow of a shadow. I heard, but not with my ears, nay, with mind itself, a vast roaring, an ordered tumult of sound that came hurling from the outposts of space, approaching, rushing, hurricane out of the heart of the cosmos, closer, closer. It wrapped itself about us with unearthly mighty arms. And brilliant, ever more brilliant, streamed the radiance through us. The faceted walls dimmed. In front of me they melted, diaphanously, like a gelatinous wall in a blast of flame, through their vanishing, under the torrent of driving light, the unthinkable, impalpable tornado, I began to move, slowly, then ever more swiftly. Still the roaring grew, the radiance streamed, ever faster we went, cutting down through the length the extension of me, dropping a wall of rock, foreshortened, clenched close. I caught a glimpse of the elfin gardens. They whirled, contracted, into a thin slice of color that was a part of me. Another wall of rock shrinking into a thin wedge through which I flew, and that at once took its place within me, like a card slipped beside those others. Flashing around me, and from Lakla and O'Keefe, were nimbuses of flickering scarlet flames, and always the steady hurling forward, appallingly mechanical. Another barrier of rock, a gleam of white waters incorporating themselves into my drawing out, even as were the flowered mosslands, the slicing rocky walls, still another rampart of cliff, dwindling instantly into the vertical plane of those others. Our flight checked. We seemed to hover within, then to sway onward, slowly, cautiously. A mist danced ahead of me, a mist that grew steadily thinner. We stopped, wavered, the mist cleared. I looked out into translucent green distances, shot with swift prismatic gleamings, waves and pulsings of luminosity like midday sun glow through green tropic waters, dancing, scintillating veils of sparkling atoms that flew hither and yon through depths of nebulous splendor. And Lakla and Larry and I were, I saw, like shadow shapes upon a smooth breast of stone twenty feet or more above the surface of this place, a surface spangled with tiny white blossoms, gleaming wanly through creeping veils of phosphorescence like smoke of moon-fire. We were shadows, and yet we had substance. We were incorporated with a part of the rock, and yet we were living flesh and blood. We stretched, nor will I qualify this, we stretched through mile upon mile of space 
that, weirdly enough, gave at one at the same time an absolute certainty of immense horizontal lengths and a vertical concentration that contained nothing of length, nothing of space whatever. We stood there upon the face of the stone, and still we were here within the faceted oval before the screen of radiance. "'Steady!' it was Lakla's voice, and not beside me there, but at my ear, close before the screen. "'Steady, Goodwin, and see!' The sparkling haze cleared. Enormous reaches stretched before me. Shimmering up through them, as though growing in some medium thicker than air, was mass upon mass of verdure. Fruiting trees, and trees laden with pale blossoms. Arbors, and bowers of pallid blooms, like that sea-fruit of oblivion, grapes of leaf that cling to the tide, swept walls of the caverns of the Hebrides. Through them, beyond them, around and about them, drifted and eddied a horde, great as that with which Tamerlane swept down upon Rome, vast as the myriads which Genghis Khan rolled upon the caliphs, men and women and children, clothed in tatters, half-nude and wholly naked, slant-eyed Chinese, slow-eyed Malays, islanders black and brown and yellow, fierce-faced warriors of the Solomons with grizzled locks fantastically bedizened, Papuans, feline Javans, Dyaks of hill and shore, hook-nosed Phoenicians, Romans, straight-browed Greeks, and Vikings centuries beyond their lives, scores of the black-haired Myrians, white faces of our own Westerners, men and women and children, drifting, eddying, each stamped with that mingled horror and rapture, eyes filled with ecstasy and terror entwined, marked by God and devil in embrace, the seal of the Shining One, the dead alive, the lost ones, the loot of the dweller. Soul-sick, I gazed. They lifted to us visages of dread, they swept down toward us, glaring upward a bank against which other and still other waves of faces rolled, were checked, paused, until as far as I could see, like billows piled upon an ever-growing barrier, they stretched beneath us, staring, staring. Now there was a movement, far, far away, a concentrating of the lambency, the dead alive swayed, oscillated, separated forming a long lane against whose outskirts they crowded with avid, hungry insistence. First only a luminous cloud, then a whirling pillar of splendors through the lane came, the Shining One. As it passed, the dead alive swirled in its wake like leaves behind a whirlwind, eddying, twisting. And as the dweller raced by them, brushing them with its spiralings and tentacles, they shone forth with unearthly, awesome gleamings, like vessels of alabaster in which wicks flare suddenly. And when it had passed, they closed behind it, staring up at us once more. The dweller paused beneath us. Out of the drifting ruck swam the body of Throckmorton. Throckmorton, my friend, to find whom I had gone to the pallid moon-door my friend, whose call I had so laggardly followed. On his face was the dweller's dreadful stamp, the lips were bloodless, 
The eyes were wide, lucent, something like pale phosphorescence gleaming within them, and soulless. He stared straight up at me, unwinking, unrecognizing. Pressing against his side was a woman, young and gentle, and lovely, lovely even through the mask that lay upon her face. And her wide eyes, like Throckmorton's, glowed with the lurking, unholy fires. She pressed against him closely. Though the hordes kept up the faint churning, these two kept ever together, as though bound by unseen fetters. And I knew the girl for Edith, his wife, who in vain effort to save him had cast herself into the dweller's embrace. "'Throckmorton!' I cried. "'Throckmorton! I'm here!' Did he hear? I know now, of course, he could not. But then I waited, hope striving to break through the nightmare hands that gripped my heart. Their wide eyes never left me. There was another movement about them. Others pushed past them. They drifted back, swaying, eddying, and still staring were lost in the awful throng. Vainly I strained my gaze to find them again, to force some sign of recognition, some awakening of the clean life we know. But they were gone. Try as I would, I could not see them, nor Stanton and the northern woman named Thora, who had been the first of that tragic party to be taken by the dweller. Throckmorton! I cried again, despairingly. My tears blinded me. I felt Lakla's light touch. Steady, she commanded pitifully. Steady, Goodwin. You cannot help them now. Steady and watch. Below us the Shining One had paused, spiraling, swirling, vibrant with all its transcendent, devilish beauty, had paused and was contemplating us. Now I could see clearly that nucleus, that core shot through with flashing veins of radiance, that ever-shifting shape of glory through the shroudings of shimmering, misty plumes, throbbing lacy opalescences, vaporous spiralings of prismatic phantom fires. Steady over it hung the seven little moons of amethyst, of saffron, of emerald and azure and silver, of rose of life and moon-white. They poised themselves like a diadem, calm, serene, immobile, and down from them into the dweller, piercing plumes and swirls and spirals, ran countless tiny strands, radiations, finer than the finest spun thread of spider's web, gleaming filaments through which seemed to run power from the seven globes. Like—yes, that was it—miniatures of the seven torrents of moon-flame that poured through the septichromatic high crystals in the moon-pool's chamber roof. Swam out of the coruscating haze the face. Both of man and of woman it was like some ancient, androgynous deity of Etruscan fanes long dust, and yet neither woman nor man, human and unhuman, seraphic and sinister, benign and malefic, and still no more of these four than is flame, which is beautiful whether it warms or devours, or wind whether it feathers the trees or shatters them, or the wave which is wondrous whether it caresses or kills. Subtly, undefinably, 
It was of our world, and of one not ours. Its lineaments flowed from another sphere, took fleeting familiar form, and as swiftly withdrew whence they had come. Something amorphous, unearthly, as of unknown unheeding unseen gods rushing through the depths of star-hung space, and still of our own earth, with the very soul of earth peering out from it, caught within it, and in some unholy way debased. It had eyes, eyes that were now only shadows darkening within its luminosity like veils falling, and falling, opening windows into the unknowable, deepening into softly glowing blue pools, blue as the moon-pool itself, and then flashing out, and this only when the face bore its most human resemblance, into twin stars large almost as the crown of little moons, and with that same baffling suggestion of peepholes into a world untrodden, alien, perilous to man. "'Steady!' came Lakla's voice, her body leaned against mine. I gripped myself, my brain steadied, I looked again. And I saw that, of body, at least body as we know it, the shining one had none nothing but the throbbing, pulsing core streaked with lightning veins of rainbows. And around this, never still, sheathing it, the swirling, glorious veilings of its hell-and-heaven-born radiance. So the dweller stood, and gazed. Then up toward us swept a reaching, questing spiral. Under my hand, Lockla's shoulder quivered. Dead alive, and their master vanished. I danced, flickered within the rock, felt a swift sense of shrinking, of withdrawal. Slice upon slice the carded walls of stone, of silvery waters, of elfin gardens slipped from me as cards are withdrawn from a pack, one by one, slipped, wheeled, flattened, and lengthened out as I passed through them and they passed from me. Gasping, shaken, weak, I stood within the faceted oval chamber arm still about the handmaiden's white shoulder, Larry's hand still clutching her girdle. The roaring, impalpable gale from the cosmos was retreating to the outposts of space, was still. The intense, streaming, flooding radiance lessened, died. "'Now you have beheld,' said Lakla, "'and well you trod the road. And now shall you hear, even as the silent ones have commanded, what the Shining One is, and how it came to be. The steps flashed back. The doorway into the chamber opened. Larry, as silent as I, we followed her through it. End of chapter 28